The reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on to these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Marianne, thank you very much indeed. Uh, this passage starts with a great question, uh, but it's a great question that is asked for all of the wrong reasons. Uh, it's asked to test Jesus, to corner him, uh, and hopefully, from the point of view of the person that asked the question, to make him say something stupid or something self-incriminating. Uh, and that's a shame because it's actually a great question. Uh, the question was, what is the greatest commandment in the law? That's a very specific question. It belongs in the first century uh, when Jesus was alive. It was asked in a culture where people knew what we now call the Old Testament. They knew the law of the Lord really well. And there was, in a sense, a tradition, a heritage, where you talked and you debated and you tried to work things out. And so that was the culture in which this question was asked. But actually, it resonates with us today. We might say it slightly differently. We might say, what is the most important thing to remember in life? Or someone might say to you at a break at work, they might say, well, you know, what, what's at the heart of your faith or the way that you see the world? And it suddenly becomes a very familiar question uh, to us. You may know that Jesus is absolutely amazing at uh, answering questions and particularly seeing through the intent of the questioner. And that's absolutely true here. So when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, he gives uh, this answer, absolutely revolutionary, but also absolutely encouraging to us. He begins by quoting at what's called the Shema, uh, which uh, was and still is recited uh, by those of the Jewish faith. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. We heard it read, uh, Marion read it for us. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Jesus says, that's the big one. If you need to remember anything about the law, it is that it, is, it points us to and it encourages us, and it facilitates us to love God. What a beautiful thing to say. And of course, many religious people have got this absolutely wrong. I mean, you need to repent of the ways in which we have made the faith something that is not primarily about love, the love of God and our love for God. Uh, but then Jesus adds on a bit. Classic Jesus. He's asked for one and he gives two. He's just not quite ready to stop at one. He says, there is a second one. And as Louise was pointing out, it's absolutely and completely linked to the first. He says, 
of course, we begin with love for God. But then we move on in Leviticus 19 to love for neighbor. So it says, love God, love your neighbor. It's those two together that you need to bear in mind. And for Jesus, uh, these things are a pair. Uh, They're like rhubarb and custard, or they're like peaches and cream, uh, or if you're posh, they're like strawberries and balsamic vinegar. they, They belong to one another. They go together. And we are going to spend two whole months, uh, right through to the end of August, looking at these two things and asking this question, how do I love God and why? And how do I love my neighbor? Including that great question, well, who even is uh, my neighbor? All of us have priorities in life. We have the things that shape us, the things that direct us, uh, the things that drive us when we wake up in the morning, the things that inform us. If there's a crisis, if we have to make a decision, if we're suddenly faced with a particular piece of news, there will be a mindset, a worldview that you have uh, as a person. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're all about love. You're absolutely all about love, uh, about love for God and love for neighbor. Now, thank goodness that doesn't make all of us therapists or mystics or clergy. It does mean, however, that whatever we do, whether you're a student, uh, whether you're at home with the kids, uh, whether you work in a really high-powered job, whether you work in a really boring job, all that you are is about love. And love expressed primarily to God, but then also expressed to your neighbor. Love is your marching song, and love is your heartbeat. Now, before we dive into detail, which we will do in these next weeks, I'd just like to, in a sense, to introduce some big overview questions, issues that we might want to consider together at the start of this series as we look about what it means to love God and love neighbor. The first thing is just to, to notice something. Uh, notice that Jesus is convinced that love for God and love for neighbor is the message of the whole Bible. Uh, Jesus quotes from two of the foundational books of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Uh, Jesus is convinced in his words that all of the law and all of the prophets, the whole lot, the whole of what we would call the Old Testament, that all of those can be summarized in just those two very simple concepts, love God, love neighbor. Uh, Jesus is convinced that Moses and Aaron and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Miriam and all the great women and men of the Old Testament, that at the heart of who they were was love for God and love for neighbor. However poorly they did that, however wrong they, like us, got it, the whole of the Bible is about love of God and neighbor. The most popular word for worship in the Bible, uh, in, the, in the Greek Old Testament and New Testament, is proskuneo. And that literally means to come towards someone, to kiss them. That is the picture of worship that we have. There is an intimacy. There is a longing. There is a sense of joy in that, in our coming together uh, to worship. So Jesus will not let any of us throw away the Old Testament. He won't let us believe the easy lie that the God of the Old Testament was this angry, harsh, mean dude, and then that God was replaced by hippie Jesus in the New Testament who suddenly said, actually, you got it all wrong. God is love. 
Jesus won't let us do that. We will have to work hard to make our theology real and robust. But Jesus was convinced that it was always about love, and it is always about love, and it will always be about love. The second issue then is, well, how are we to love God? And Jesus says we are to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind. Now, that is a really Jewish way of saying all of you, not just a bit of you. It's Jesus' way of saying every single part of you. Don't hold any part of yourself back, any part of your life, any part of your character, any part of your experience. All of them are ways in which we can express love to God We can receive love from God, and we can love other people. There is an extravagance and a profound beauty in this. And of course, love poets have always known that this is the case, that any love that is worth anything demands all that we are and not just a part of us. Uh, I could have picked hundreds of lyrics, but think about these lyrics by John Legend. He says, all of me loves all of you, loves your curves and your edges and your perfect imperfections, give your all to me. I'll give my all to you. You are my end and my beginning. Even when I love, I'm winning. He knows it. He understands it. That is how love is. And when we're in love with somebody, we are ultra aware of the moments in which they are holding back a part of themselves, whether it's through fear, through shame, through selfishness, through betrayal. And Jesus is saying, love God with all that you are. It's misleading to break us down into different bits and to say, well, here's my heart bit, and here's my soul bit, and here's my mind bit. That's not how Jesus would have thought at all. We can't separate those bits out as though one minute I'm a mind and the next minute I'm a soul and the next minute I'm a heart. I'm always me. Of course, uh, for those of you who are studying or have to think really hard about your job, there is a sense in which it's really important to recognize God has given you a mind. And you can love God in understanding the world and in seeing how it works, and putting it together, and being clever, and being smart. All of that is cool, but actually, we are whole people. And so the big call is to love God with all uh, that we are. And our prayer for you is simply that over these weeks, you will learn what it means, uh, even more than you do now, to love God with all that you are. And of course, for Christians, it's just what we've always known to be true is that worship and expressing love for God doesn't just happen here. Of course, it's amazing and wonderful that it happens here. But it happens throughout the week. It happens quietly by your bed in the evening or first thing in the morning. It happens in your work. It happens when you're out for a walk. It happens when you're mangling the kids into the car, at busy, whatever it is. In all of these things, we learn to love God. Thirdly, how are we to love our neighbor? We're to love our neighbor as yourself, says Jesus. And the best lens we have this is in Luke's gospel, which we'll come to in August, where we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Jesus takes for granted that all of us will have practical concerns about our own day-to-day life. And on the whole, we will see to those. And we'll also take care of the people that are nearest and dearest to us. The real question is, well, who is my neighbor? Is it just the person that lives next door? Is it just somebody within my community? Is it just someone who lives in Winchester? You know, where do I draw the line? And we will come back to that. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he is not directly addressing the more modern notion of self-hatred. Now, yes, some of us here, some of the time, do hate ourselves. We might even say we loathe ourselves. And it might be for a variety of reasons. We might hate the way we look. We might hate the things that we do. We might regret the impacts that we have on other people. Now, the best Christian place to start when we feel like that, when we would use the language of hatred and loathing about ourselves, is to say, I'm going to think about how much God loves me. And I'm going to look in the Bible, and I'm going to think about the world, and I'm going to say, Simon, how much does God love you? And once I begin to ask that question, I begin to look differently. It's not that my flaws and my imperfections suddenly disappear. Actually, the glory of being a Christian is that I know that with all of my flaws and all of my imperfections, God looks on me with love. And so the place we start when we experience self-hatred is to remember how much we are loved primarily by God, then by other people. Jesus is directly addressing the narcissism, the self-love of our age and every age, our tendency to love ourselves at the expense of others. We're going to return in the autumn to what I think I would more appropriately call self-care, looking after ourselves. And that's about setting appropriate boundaries and knowing our limits and uh, refueling ourselves in life without feeling guilty. Lastly, we do need to consider uh, this question. The question is, can you, can you command somebody to love you? You know, there's probably mo- many of us here have sort of tried that. You know, we've sort of said to somebody, maybe that we're in love with romantically, and we've sort of said, you need to love me. We might have done it by subterfuge or trying to make them feel guilty, but sometimes we might have even in our exasperation kind of either said or thought, love me. I command you, I order you, love me. And of course, if someone says that, you tend to run for the hills um, because you just think this is a weirdo and who on earth are they, who on earth are they to tell me, to order me, to love me, to love them. We feel love should be spontaneous. Love should be unforced. So what on earth is Jesus talking about? We need to start by remembering who's doing the commanding. It's God who's doing the commanding. It's not me. It's God. God wants the very best for each one of us. He's not a tyrant. He's not a bully. He's not a megalomaniac. God knows that the very best human life is one that is surrendered to love. But God also knows that with sin and evil in the world, I am always going to be tempted either to block out God and his love or to refuse to love other people. And so that's why love comes to us as a command. 
by a God who knows me and loves me. God commands us uh, to love, and that is liberating. When we surrender to God's love, we start to love what God loves, and we start to want what he wants. When we surrender to God's love, we learn to look on other people through God's eyes of love. We learn to see them in a new way, and that means that we can love them and serve them. So much easier to love and serve somebody that completely winds us up if we remember first and foremost that they are made in the image of God, that Jesus died on the cross for them, that he is a child precious in God's sight. God's command to love is liberating because it reminds us that love is more than a feeling. Of course, you can't command the feeling of love. You can't tell somebody to feel in a certain way. But you can present a choice. You can present a path that we either take or ignore. And God says, choose love. Choose love. And God says, don't wait to feel it. You will feel it strongly sometimes. But there'll be other times when you don't feel it. The Psalms tell us that in those moments, we should stir our soul. That's code for we should talk to ourselves and remember what is true and remember who God is and remember how he sees the world and we need to hold on to love in those moments. We will be absolutely miserable, I guarantee it, if we only express love to God or love to our neighbor when we feel like it. I, for one, am deeply grateful that we have an absolute command to love rather than conditional advice uh, to go with the flow when it feels like it. What we're going to try and do is just unpack why it is that expressing our love for God wholeheartedly is so important, and then why and how we begin to love our neighbor. Now, Louise was very modest early on. She talked about some big things happening next Saturday and Sunday. Uh, There is something equally large happening on Saturday as well, which is that Louise and Michael are getting married. Exactly. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little preview. Um, There's no better way to end a sermon on this passage than to read the prayer that comes at the beginning of Louise and Michael's wedding service. I mean, it's not only Louise and Michael's wedding service, but it, this, but it will include theirs. And it's just such a brilliant prayer, and it totally expresses what we've been thinking about tonight. Obviously, on Saturday, it will have particular relevance to the two of them. But actually, we believe as Christians that the call on every single person, love God, love your neighbor. So this works for everybody. So let's pray as I finish. God of wonder and of joy, grace comes from you, and you alone are the source of life and love. Without you, we cannot please you. Without your love, our deeds are worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love, that we may worship you now with thankful hearts, and serve you always with willing minds, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.